Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today is really exciting because we're beginning a new, what I think will be about an eight-part series on treating speech intelligibility in toddlers. And so today we're doing the first part of this series and really covering a lot of the background information. And so let's just dive right in. The name of today's show or the title of this course if you're getting continuing education for it, is five factors that indicate significant speech intelligibility problems in toddlers. And we are using evidence-based practice, and you can find all of those references listed there in your handout. Uh, But we're really going to look at, first of all, before we can treat a child's speech intelligibility problem, we need to determine if there's a problem in the first place. So I want to give you some pretty clear-cut guidelines that let you know yeah, this is a big deal. This is something that we should be concerned about. And let me just say, if you're a parent and you've just somehow stumbled upon this on YouTube or uh, at my website at teachmetotalk.com, we really can't worry about or be overly concerned about treating or working on or, or even being even concerned about speech intelligibility in toddlers until they already have an established vocabulary. So what does that mean? It means that they're already talking. You really can't fix (laughs) how a kid says a word until he's using real words. So if a child that you are uh, working with, if you're a therapist or if you're a parent, if you're parenting a child who is doing lots of jargon, parents sometimes refer to that as gibberish or baby talk or I don't know what you might call it at your house, but really the definition of jargon is long strings of unintelligible speech. Children at that point really aren't using enough purposeful uh, communication with, with what we would call real words in layman's terms. And so those kids aren't really ready to target speech intelligibility yet because they're not speaking in words that we can really shape. And they're not really using consistent labels yet. And so the this isn't even the first factor. We're not there yet, but it's a foundational piece of information. We can't worry about speech intelligibility until a child has some words. Now, the evidence-based recommendation for that is that a child has at least 25 words before we can begin to do some really um, justifiable or some valid uh, phonological analysis here. And so if you're a parent and you're thinking, my child only has a handful of words, but he's really hard to understand, your first priority is going to be getting some more words. And we'll actually talk more about that in part two of the show or part two of this series when we look at which children are developmentally ready to target articulation or speech intelligibility and which ones aren't. But today we're really going to focus on who has a problem and who doesn't. So let's figure out how can we identify if there's a problem before we even start to worry about what the treatment is. The second piece that I want to say, the second caveat that we get to right here at the beginning, and again, as a therapist, this just keeps me grounded every day of my career. Career, and I say it to parents over and over and over. And if you've read my therapy manual, Functional Phonology, which all this information is pulled from, I, I repeat this phrase, this sentence throughout the book. And it is so important. What a toddler is trying to say is much, 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 much more important than how he actually says it. So even as we're speaking about speech intelligibility and really spending this summer on this, if you're a regular podcast listener, this is our whole series this summer, please keep in mind that we never, ever, ever want to lose focus of that communicative intent or, again, what he's trying to say, what he's trying to communicate. We would never want to be so picky about speech intelligibility or about teaching new speech sounds or or letting that letting communication suffer because we are hyper focused on how a child says a word rather than what he says so let's keep that in mind even as we're spending all these weeks talking about speech intelligibility so let's jump right in with five factors that indicate significant speech intelligibility problems in toddlers and again remember this is just going to let you know straight off 
off straight from the beginning, right off the bat. Do I worry about this as a therapist? Is this a part of my treatment plan? Or as a parent, should I seek professional services for this? Do I need to have my child evaluated? These are the evidence-based guidelines that will let you know. Now, if you're a therapist, you you know what EBP or evidence-based practice is. But as a parent, that just simply means, what does the research say? What, what do... What does information about thousands and thousands and thousands of children in rigorous scientific study, what does it really tell us? And those are the guidelines that we want to use when we are deciding, should we work on speech intelligibility with this very young child or should we not? And let me just say, I don't want to jump ahead to part two of this series yet. But for children who have been late talkers, this is a really bigger, even a bigger deal than it is with children who have been typically developing with their language development, because there's some other factors that really, really would also play a role. But today we're just going to isolate it with what are the guidelines? What should we look at to say, yes, this is a problem or no, it's not. So let's just start off with the very first one, which is... Um, based on intelligibility norms. So what does that mean? It means we're going to look at children at their age and look at how well they are understood. And again, this is compared to thousands and thousands and thousands of children. So all kinds of things like, are boys harder to understand than girls? What about prematurity? What about all those things? Those things have been lumped in already. So when we are looking at these guidelines, you don't really need to be overly concerned about, well, what about this and what about this and what about this? That's already taken care of through that standardization process. And that's what relying on research to base your clinical decisions on, that's why we do it. That's what makes it so effective because we do have a pretty clear-cut guideline that lets us know this is how it is and this is where this individual child compares to the children, the thousands of children or however large the study is, how how this one child relates to that group of children. And again, the beauty in that is you don't have to worry about all these other little picky factors. That's been done and taken care of through that whole scientific process, through the, the research process. Children of all developmental levels are included in that. So you have your kids who are really, really way ahead of the curve and also your kids who have some delays in there. So it's all factored in and all averaged out. So let's just look at this data here. What are the intelligibility norms for children in this toddler age range? And actually, in this study, we're going to go all the way through five years so that you can really, really compare where an individual child is versus, um, again, this, this whole big group of children. Let me say one thing that I don't think I've said yet that's so important. All little kids are hard to understand when they're learning how to talk all toddlers and that's whether you are that child's mom <laughs> or whether you are the neighbor who just sees the child occasionally or the grandparent who might live in another state and you only FaceTime the child or see the child periodically or whether you were just seeing a child you've never met before uh, just you know at the store or something all little kids are hard to understand and so we need to keep that in mind as we are reviewing these norms too and the norms really reflect that and so I want to share with you the easiest age-based reference data that I've found to help us determine what's normal for speech intelligibility. And so let me just say one more little thing. Remember what I said before about standardization, meaning when we standardize a test or when we conduct research and when we're looking at things like establishing milestones, we use all kids and meaning that there's so, the full range of developmental levels. So that also would account for children who are premature. And you know, we only adjust for prematurity until a child is 24 months. And so if your child has been was six weeks early, which is a big deal to uh, for a kid to be born at 34 weeks versus 40 weeks, that is a big deal. And we think about that and we, we focus on that and and we adjust for that. However, when we're looking at norms, that is already built in. So don't worry too much about that. Like I said before about coming up with this, this um, outlier and this outlier and that outlier. You really don't need to do that when we're looking at 
research and and big groups of children that have that the data has been standardized. So let's talk about this. This is actually from uh, researchers Penna, Brooks, and Hedge, and it's from 2007. And again, if you want to look at the specific study, it's from you can get um, my therapy manual with all of this listed, and it will also be included in your handout if you are getting continuing education credit for this course. So those authors started with children who were in the toddler range from 19 to 24 months, and so their average intelligibility level, or what we would expect, is that they are understood between 25 and 50% of the time. So can you see how generous that is? So even as a parent, if you have a child who turns two today, today is their second birthday, and you understand about half of what they say, he or she is right on track. And so I think that is so comforting as a parent to know Lots of kids are hard to understand, and especially if you've been the parent of a late talker and you have just worried and worried and worried and worried about your child and you are uh, listening to these guidelines, I hope that this gives you some sense of relief. Now, there will be some parents who are listening that these, these levels will confirm what you already knew. My child is still behind. My child is delayed, and that's okay, too. I don't want you to get upset about that or overly emotional about that it's it's just we're just looking at data here and we're just looking at where where children fall so that we can determine is speech intelligibility enough of a problem for me to focus on or as a therapist should I be worried about other things should I be working on other things and so that's what we're doing here with these levels so 19 to 24 months is 25 to 50 percent how often a child is understood so then from two years to three years, so from that second birthday to that third birthday, intelligibility improves so to 50 to 75%, meaning that if you looked at everything a child says throughout the day, you understand him half to three quarters of the time. And then it bumps up to between uh, four and five years would be 75 to 90%. And then five plus years, 90 to 100%. So we've got these big guidelines here. So these norms leave lots of room for speech sound errors. So children are going to make sound substitutions. They are going to uh, have simplifications in their long multisyllabic words. They are going to reduce some of those things. And so we can expect that. We can expect that variability. And we can even expect those little uh, individual uh, errors that children make, that they uh, that, that they say a word that as a parent you think oh that's so cute how he says it and, and there's room for that there's tons of room for that in uh, typical and even delayed speech in, uh, development here so we always want to keep that in mind too so we've looked at that and that's the first factor and that's the first guideline so for me as a therapist if I am looking at is this uh, is speech intelligibility frankly worth my time working on as a treatment goal that's my first thing that I'm going to look at does a child fall within those norms do I understand him at this level uh, as we saw here in uh, that information and so you can use that as your very first factor now these next four factors are from a study by Stoll and Gammon in 1995 and this study is getting a little older but I love it because it's so straightforward and I've used this guideline uh, since the very beginning of my practice as a speech pathologist I've been practicing for over 25 years and so it, this is one of those time tested uh, data points that I think I'll continue to use you know for the the next however long the Lord lets me practice and, and lets me live and so these next four things are from this study and I think I think it's great information because as a therapist it's really easy to again use sort of as a screener you can use this information as you are initially assessing a child and evaluating a child and these are also really easy things to explain to parents so that's the main reason I still will continue to use this piece of research to support what I do so the first the the next factor the first factor in the Stoll Gammon study is numerous vowel errors so a child who really substitutes or omits vowel sounds in words, that's a significant speech intelligibility problem. And why is that? That's because 
says, most children have mastered nearly all vowel sounds by age two. Now, some errors are still going to be appropriate uh, at age two, but by three, all vowels should be mastered with the exception of vowels that are combined with that pesky R, so like bird. Some children, that, that vowel may not be uh, firmly established by them, but all other vowels should really be accurate in words. Now, if you're a therapist, you know this, but as a parent, let me just say, let, let's talk about what vowels are. And if you'll go back to your school days, vowels, you, you probably remember from kindergarten or first grade, you know, uh, vowels are A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. But actually, there are 14 to 16 different vowel sounds in American English. Even more, if you are speaking Australian English or uh, are from the UK, or um, we just had children in our home that were from Uganda and beautiful, beautiful uh, English, but their vowels were really, really different uh, from our Southern American dialect vowels. But that's what we really, really look at first when we are analyzing speech intelligibility in a toddler. So we would look at how he pronounces those sounds, and if we think about the letters A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y, how those are pronounced in words. So if a child says buh for ball, that's a vowel error because he's using that uh sound for what would be ball, the A there in ball. If he says coo for cat, that's an error. The oo instead of the I in cat. If he says ha for high, that's an error. So as a therapist, we are well-versed in how to transcribe children's errors, and we think about this all the time. I bet as a therapist, you'll meet a child, you know, on the soccer field or in Walmart, and you are listening, and he says something, and you don't understand it. I hope one of the first things you do is, is don't think about his consonants, but think about his vowels. What, what's off? What's missing? What's deleted? What's, what's substituted? in that word. So vowels are where we want to start for that. As a parent, I t said speech pathologists are well-versed in transcription. Uh, all that means is we write it down. So, and, and we have different symbols for vowels, but as a parent, you can kind of do the same thing too. So if you're thinking, how does my child really say that word? Think, how would I write it? How would I spell it out? And if the letters that you are using, like if he pronounces the word foot, with there, there's anything but the uh that you would think about in that sound for foot, th that's an error. So again, spelling it out and writing it out can really, really make a difference for you there. Now, I talked about this a little bit when I mentioned my little friends that we just met from Africa. Why are vowels so important? Because it's a major contributor to intelligibility. So when a kid substitutes a vowel sound, meaning he uses one sound for another, or when he leaves it off altogether, it is so hard to understand or even try to guess what that child might be trying to say. So super, super important thing. It's also what, as I referred to earlier, makes me sound Southern. <laughs> it makes you sound wherever you, like wherever you're from. And so again, vowels are a really big part of how well we understand children. And let me just say, if you're a speech pathologist who's as old as me or almost, we did not focus on lots of vowel sounds when we were in grad school. We learned a lot about consonants and about substitutions and how to address those kinds of errors, but we didn't talk very much about vowels. Now, I have a daughter who's finishing up or beginning her second year of grad school, and they are talking more about vowels now, and I am glad to hear it. Uh, in her speech language, language pathology, uh, edu formal education, she is learning more about vowel sounds and she is learning more about how important that is and how we need to address these things. But again, if you're my age, you know, turning 53, you probably didn't spend as much time on that. And so as a therapist, that's super, super important. And we'll talk about uh, as we go in a later part of the series, how to address these things. But our number one concern is today, is this a problem or is this not a problem? So we just need to decide. Can a child produce vowel sounds correctly in words or does he not? So another thing that I want to say about vowel sounds is it really does give us some diagnostic information because there are some specific diagnoses that a child would eventually get that would uh, 
be driven by this information that he has difficulty learning to use vowel sounds. When, and primarily, we're referring to suspected childhood apraxia of speech. So many of our little friends with speech-language disorders who go on to be diagnosed with apraxia, this is one of the things that their parents really note in their histories. And if you're seeing the child early enough in early intervention in that uh, they get referred sometime when they're one, two, or even three in a preschool program, as a therapist, that may be something you're noticing is that they just have a limited number of vowels. And so a child may substitute a really neutral vowel like ah uh, for everything. So instead of dad, dad, he says duh, duh for dad, dad, or for uh, mama, you know, it's mama. And so think about that neutral vowel sound there and think about, you know, if a child has 25 different words, do they all sound alike? Sometimes it's because the vowel, they're using the same vowel from word to word to word. So it's really, really an important uh, piece for us to analyze. And even as a parent, again, you can do that. Now, I mentioned that diagnosis, suspected childhood apraxia of speech. I don't want you to sit here and think, that's it. That's what my child has. And if you're a parent, you may have, you know, want to click off this video right now and start Googling that. Don't do that. <laughs> you can get so much great information on the internet, but let me tell you, it can also really, really, really sometimes lead you to a place that's completely wrong. And so even though I'm saying if a child has numerous vowel errors, that's likely a diagnosis that we would explore. But you certainly don't want to hang your hat on that being your child's single problem or your child's only problem. And there may be lots and lots of other things going on that warrant your attention much more than this or, or, or you know, making you so worried about a specific diagnosis when that may not be it at all. So even though I've mentioned that, uh, I want to caution you as a parent not to be overly concerned about what the pro specific diagnosis or problem is at this point. Let's just, again, kind of keep it to, is this a significant speech intelligibility problem or is it not? So that's, that's our, our second factor here. Are there numerous vowel errors? And let's talk about the numerous piece, not just one little word or two that a child is mispronounces or has an error with it would be is this a consistent error does he have difficulty with vowels from word to word to word to word and that's always important too you can't just take an isolated incident <coughs> excuse me <coughs> let me get a drink here pardon me you can't just take one or two little errors again and <coughs> excuse me and base all of your assumptions off that. It really has to be a consistent pattern of errors that you would think about and use to uh, make a diagnosis or even to really, again, consider if this is a real problem or not. So that was our second factor here that indicates a significant speech intelligibility problem. Let's finish up with one more statement about vowel errors in words. We already said that when a child uses a limited number of vowels, we could think about suspected childhood apraxia of speech. When vowel sounds are distorted, we suspect dysarthria, which also is a motor speech disorder, but it's caused by a totally different set of issues. There's low muscle tone, and certainly that can affect a child's entire body, not just his mouth. So when we have vowels that sound mushy or, again, distorted is the formal term there. Uh, uh, my, my reason for saying this is apraxia, a, a kid, if he has some vowel errors, you have to really tease out what those errors are. And apraxia is not the only diagnosis. We could certainly think about dysarthria. And that would be consistent with a child who maybe has uh, something neurological like cerebral palsy, uh, a child who's had a stroke or a brain injury, any kind of brain abnormality there, uh, dysarthria, that leads to uh, differences in muscle tone. And that can be low muscle tone or high muscle tone. Dysarthria is going to be your speech diagnosis that you would pursue if you're a therapist. Now remember, again, if you're a parent, don't get too fixated on what these specific diagnoses are with your own child right now. This is just information to kind of get it out there with what the possibility is. So that was our second factor that indicates a significant speech intelligibility problem. Let's move on to number three here. The third factor is widespread deletion of initial consonants. So what does that mean? That means that a child leaves off the beginning sound of a word. So instead of saying pen, he says n. Instead of saying cup, 
he says up. And again, we're not worried about the other sounds in the word yet. We're just talking about that initial consonant. What's the beginning sound in that word? So the guideline here is by age two, a child should use at least three to four different initial consonant sounds. And by age three, a child should have a large repertoire of initial consonant sounds. So if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you're thinking, hmm, my child uses about 40 different words. And again, if, you're, if you haven't kept a little word list, that is a really helpful thing for you to do. And as a therapist, you may encourage your parents to do that. And one thing that I, or the parents of children on your caseload, <laughs> one thing that I always try to do is tell parents, don't write it down if he's just imitating you or copying you. These have to be spontaneous words that he says on his own. And so we've got that word list going, but we also need to have a little list beside it with how he says the word. And so if you're looking at a 40-word vocabulary and a child, you're, think, you're looking at that, and he, out of that 40 words, leaves off the beginning sound in 30 or 35 of those words, that's a problem. That's what we mean by widespread deletion of initial consonants. And so just like we talked about with vowel sounds, you don't want to make any of these uh, assumptions based on one or two errors. It's got to be consistent enough for it to be considered uh, a pattern. So that's what we're looking for here are patterns. And so when we're, when we're looking at that uh, widespread deletion of initial consonant sounds, you want to make sure that he's leaving off lots of first sounds in words. And so I gave you that guideline with children should use at least three to four different consonant sounds at the beginning of words by the time they are two, and then at three, they should have lots of beginning consonant sounds. So let me just talk about two, the variability here. Each child's inventory of consonant sounds can be a little bit different. And researchers really do vary in their findings of when children of different ages have genuinely mastered specific speech sounds, but let me give you a general consensus of normal consonant development. And if you are getting CE credit for this, this will be in your handout. But if you're just listening, that's fine too. So let me just go with these, uh, give you these sounds. So by 24 to 36 months, so meaning before a child turns three, he usually can say words that begin with P, B, M, or all your lip sounds right here, T, N, and D, or consonant sounds made in the middle of your mouth, H and W, and then K and G, your consonant sounds made at the back of your mouth. And so that's just the general kind of list that speech-language pathologists use when we are looking at mastery of consonant sounds. And again, we're talking about sounds at the, at the beginning of words. And so why is this important? Why does this let us know that there's a significant speech intelligibility problem? Well, I've already told you one thing is that most kids by two can do three to four different sounds at the beginning of words. And most kids by age three uh, can say lots of those different sounds. So we do have information, again, based on those norms. The second thing is, it's just like we talked about with vowels. When kids can't do or don't include lots of consonants at the beginning of beginnings of words, it does lead us down a diagnostic trail. And so just like we talked about with vowels, limited consonant sound use, especially at the beginning of words, really, really does indicate a motor speech disorder. And we've already talked about two of those, apraxia and dysarthria. And we'll talk more about those specific diagnoses in other later parts of this series. But we do, uh, again, start to think about, especially as a therapist, this could be the reason, this could be the diagnosis that I'm leaning toward uh, here in the very beginning, of beginning to think about why this child is having so much difficulty being understood. Now, toddlers and preschoolers who also have phonological disorders may also emit consonant sounds, but they're more likely to delete those consonant sounds in the middle of the word or at the ends of words. So looking here at this initial 
the initial sound or the beginning sound of the word really is a bigger deal. It is much harder to understand or, as I said before, guess what a child is trying to say when he doesn't get the first sound uh, correct when when he leaves it off or when he substitutes it so think about that too especially for you therapists who are listening uh and and really thinking about constant sounds where are these deletions what position is this and when it's an initial constant deletion it generally is more serious because again as we've already talked about uh even in previous shows Delays are much different and delays are are much less serious than a disorder. A disorder means that the developmental pattern is atypical or vastly different than what's expected. And so for children to omit initial consonant sounds, it really indicates more of a speech disorder than it would a speech delay. And so I wanted to mention that as well. Uh, so widespread deletion of initial consonants. That was our third factor that indicates a significant speech intelligibility problem. All right, let's go ahead and look at the fourth factor that indicates a significant speech intelligibility problem, and that's going to be substitution of back consonants for other kinds of consonant sounds. And so uh, what are your back consonants? As speech therapists, we think about these as pharyngeal sounds or sounds made in our pharynx. That would be your throat if you're a parent listening to this. So your K's and your G's. It also, uh, we also want to think about another sound here, an H, a there. If a child is using a K, a G, or an H for a lot of other consonant sounds, uh, it really is atypical phonological development. And we always think about that as a speech disorder versus a speech delay. So this would be a kid who says gaga for bubble. So he's putting a G in the place of a B. Or a kid that says ho for no. That's a much more serious error. And it's something that, again, we don't see in typical speech development of children. You know, I meant to do this at the beginning, but let me just do it now, especially for parents. Let's talk about speech development versus language development and what each of these areas mean. Speech refers to specific sounds that a child makes. And if we think about it, it's relate. you can kind of think about the sound that a child would make to represent a letter of the alphabet. And so that's speech development. And that's what we're talking about today that that getting all the right sounds in the right places and speech language pathologists refer to this as as articulation and articulation really just means how we move all the muscles and the structures of our throat and of our mouth to produce a speech sound or is it right does it come out correctly language is completely different it's our vocabulary it's the communicative intent it's the it, it would be the labels that we use for words and so again I wanted to point that out and we're talking about speech development here or how children acquire the sounds that they combine to uh, produce the words so glad I got that in there because there's a difference and as a therapist you should be explaining these differences to parents too they don't automatically know the difference between speech and language so you want to be sure that you are talking uh, with them uh, and you and explaining these kinds of things too and so (laughs) let my little let my examples here when I kind of trail off and say I didn't explain this yet do the same thing as a therapist when you're speaking with parents or even when you're training caregivers like teachers or when you're doing education with other therapists in early intervention when you're talking to our OT friends and our PT friends they may not really have thought about the difference in speech development versus language development and we may have a kid who's talking a blue streak and who is really communicative and who's using tons and tons of words but his speech is so uh, delayed or disordered that it really really negatively impacts what he's saying and but but he may not be getting full credit for all the wonderful language that he's using so be sure that you're talking to therapists and uh, other therapists and other team members about how to really differentiate that as well uh, so that they make that distinction and and so that they can help reinforce that when they're talking with parents that you uh, share children with and so let's all right so let's get back here to the kids who substitute back consonants or a sound like h for a variety of other consonant sounds that is a big deal because 
when babies first start to babble and when babies first start to learn words, they typically learn consonant sounds made at the front or the middle of the mouth. So the bilabial consonant sounds like P, B, and M, those lip sounds, or alveolar consonants, uh, T's like T, D's, D, or N, Mm. Those kinds of sounds generally come first. So when a child m uses lots of consonant sounds that are made at the back of the mouth, like K and G or even H, this pattern dramatically differs from how other babies and toddlers learn sounds. And again, remember that we're always kind of looking for those developmental patterns of what's what do we expect and what do we not expect? So the substitution of back sounds or an H for other sounds would be something that we don't expect to see. And that's why it makes it a disorder versus just a delay. And so some, let's talk about why this could be. Sometimes this speech difference is really attributed to low muscle tone. And so babies who are born with Down syndrome or cerebral palsy uh, or any other kind of neurological difference there that, the and again, these are related to medical diagnoses. So parents already know about this. Their child's already had been in NICU or they've already had difficulty attaining their gross motor milestones. They were late to crawl or creep, you know, late walkers too. There's they, they, their, their muscle tone is notice visibly different. They look a little floppier when you hold them. That you can tell that there's just a difference in muscle tone uh, when you hold them, their little bodies, versus when we hold babies that we know aren't having those same kinds of issues. So babies that are typically developing, and so sometimes using the sounds at the back of the mouth, K and G or even an H there. Sometimes children do that because their tongues fall, naturally fall further back in their mouth. And so they are predisposed when they start to vocalize and make sounds to, for those sounds to come out like that because that's where their tongue positions are. And so that can certainly be um, a problem with that. Sometimes children with lower muscle tone too you know, you'll see that their little tongues, they don't naturally close their mouths uh, like, we, like we would expect. And so we can certainly see that too. And so it's harder for them to master lip closure. And so that's going to make saying bilabials virtually impossible if their little tongues are out as well. One thing that I was going to say when I was talking about um, low muscle tone at, and using K's and G's, especially if children have spent lots of time on their backs. And so kids who haven't had a lot of core muscle strength or even children who have had a little bit of low muscle tone, but because of environmental factors, you know, their moms just didn't know how important tummy time was. And so they left them in little seats all the time or in a little, in a swing all the time or left them on their backs in the crib all the time. Those environmental factors can really, really, really contribute to an existing uh, predisposition uh, because of low muscle tone to substitute those pharyngeal sounds. And as a parent, you're listening to that and you may be thinking, what in the world did she just say? All I mean by that is if your kid has some low muscle tone and you leave him on his back all the time, it's going to be harder for him to get his lips closed so he can't do those bilabial sounds and so when he tries to talk it's, his tongue is in the back of his mouth because of his positioning and because of his how his body just is, is naturally is and so he's going to be more likely to make those sounds so i hope that makes sense to you as a parent and I, I think it's valuable for therapists to kind of hear other therapists to explain this. So you may have a better way to explain that to parents. If you do, email me. <laughs> but as a therapist, you should be explaining that in these kinds of very layman terms so that parents know what the heck you're talking about. And so you can say, well, you know, your child has had a lot of trouble you know he had trouble learning how to turn over you told me that he had trouble learning to roll when he was an infant and then he didn't crawl on time and now he's he you know he's a late walker too and so naturally those kinds of things that affected his gross motor development are also going to affect his communication development because his speech sounds his his muscles are also in his mouth are also affected or even in his little diaphragm to even push that air up you know those, those kinds of kids with dysarthria that's why their vowels were distorted and that that we talked about back in uh, factor number two 
and certainly that can be why they're uh, having difficulty, you know, their, their constant sounds can be distorted too. And so you've got to make those distinctions and help parents understand those connections and those correlations. And you can't always do that with professional terminology. You have to really, really explain it and explain it and explain it and explain it again so that they uh, make those connections there. All right, so we've talked about those those reasons that a child, those physical reasons that a child may substitute back consonants like K and G or H for a variety of uh, consonant sounds. And so that was our uh, fourth factor there. The fourth factor that indicates a significant speech intelligibility problem in toddlers. And let's look at this fifth factor. The, in its deletion of final consonants, so the ending sound of the word after age three. So we've got a lot to talk about with this factor. So remember we talked about back in uh, with widespread deletion of initial consonants or sounds at the beginning of the word. Now we're ready to talk about sounds at the ends of the words. So kids who say ca for cat or ca for cup. These are the kids that we're talking about here. Here's what makes this factor a little, a little gray for us who work in early intervention. Typically, developing children don't master sounds at the ends of words until they are closer to their third birthday or 36 months. And so, let me just say, too, that doesn't always happen either. And as speech therapists, we kind of get clouded by that. Oh, kids don't need final sounds till they're age three. However, many, many, many typically developing children are including a few final sounds by the second birthday, so by 24 months. And so we have to kind of use that little leeway there or our professional judgment, and especially as we explain it to a parent. Kids get final sounds typically developing kids with their speech language skills typically master sounds at the ends of words by the time they're three and it happens somewhere between two and three and so we think about that that even kids who are doing really really well with development may struggle with that and may not get that until until closer to that third birthday uh, and let me just let me just talk about the conundrum then for speech pathologists. When we are working with toddlers in early intervention, and we are thinking, well, if a typically developing kid doesn't master that sound until he's three, and I have this child who's really struggling developmentally, and even though he's almost three chronologically developmentally, he's still hanging back here at about 24 months. You know, he's just now able to do phrases, which again is a language milestone, not a speech milestone. But it gives you some information about where he is developmentally. He's just now able to do phrases. You're not going to worry about final consonant sounds yet. Or I hope you don't worry about that yet. Because that's not really a big deal yet. Because it's not where a child is developmentally. And so as a speech therapist, you got to kind of hold that in your mind. With that's not a big deal yet. Because developmentally, he's just not there yet. But at the same time, know that this is a big factor. It's the fifth factor that really indicates a significant speech intelligibility problem. It's hard for people to know what you're saying when you don't get all the sounds in words. And so if you're consistently leaving off that last sound, it is a, a big deal. And it is something that negatively impacts speech intelligibility or how well a kid is understood. The other reason that this is so important is that consonant, vowel, consonant, syllable shape is the most frequent pattern noted in the English language. So when we look at all the different configurations of words, having that beginning sound and then a vowel, that's a consonant, and then a vowel sound in the middle, and then a consonant sound at the end is really, really common in lots of very, very familiar words. We just talked about words like cat and cup and pen and book. So, uh, you know, if we look around my, even my desk here, so many words are of that uh, pattern. And so when we have a kid who's leaving off that ending sound, it, it happens so often in, when they're trying to talk that it, it does really significantly impact how well we understand that child. So 
that's that's how you explain that to parents and that's how you say we're going to keep these two sort of opposite ideas in mind here even though your child has had a delay we know that he's just not there yet developmentally we know that kids get final consonant sounds between 24 months and 36 months and you know based on what he's doing language wise and everything else about him he's really closer to two than he is to three so we're not going to worry about that we're not going to focus on that as, as much yet that's not going to be a priority goal for us but <laughs> this is really important because lots of the words that he's trying to say need consonants on the end before we can understand what he said there. So you really, really want to be sure that you are keeping those two seemingly opposite ideas in mind when you're thinking about it. And let me just say this too. Even though we've looked at what these factors are, uh, and even though all of these factors are going to be something that we address when we begin to work on speech intelligibility, there's really a hierarchy or a sequence or a priority that we're looking at when we decide what our goals are. So if you're a parent and you've been listening to this and you say, well, I, that's it. That's why I can't understand him. He leaves off the last sounding words. There may be other errors that he's making, and, and we've talked about this with vowels and with leaving off the beginning sounds and substituting back sounds for front sounds. Those errors are actually more serious or, or should be addressed first before we worry about teaching a kid to always include a sound at the ends of words. And, and the reason for that is what we've already talked about. It's developmentally appropriate for toddlers to leave off some ending sounds until they get closer to that third birthday. So, again, remember the, kind of the, all those factors that go into that. And if you're a parent, it's so hard for you to work on speech intelligibility at home by yourself anyway that's why I always recommend that a child be in therapy and always recommend that you have a professional that you can talk with about and, um, and I'm always telling parents you know be careful when you're doing this at home you should be working on speech at home and you were your child's first and best teacher and will always be but be careful when you start to really think about goals because sometimes you can work on something or overemphasize something that's just not that big of a deal yet and you what happens when we do that uh, children sometimes plateau in their progress, meaning that they just kind of get stuck because you have them working on something that they really can't do yet. And so they're not able to progress and they just kind of stay at that period because we're addressing something that, that it's, it's just beyond their capabilities yet. And if we waited a little bit and gave them some more time to mature and some more time to master other foundational pieces that as a parent you may not even realize. So uh, think about that and think about uh, you know, this, she's telling me that this is one of the reasons that indicate there's a significant speech problem, but I'm not necessarily telling you to work on that yet because there are going to be other things. You need, you need to listen to this whole series <laughs> so you can decide what, uh, what your priorities should be. And we'll be talking about that. There are actually six priority patterns that we should work on with children, uh, young children, toddlers who are difficult to understand, and final consonants is one of them, but it's actually number six. There are other things that we have to work on first. So just wanted to give that word of caution in there. And sometimes therapists really mess this up too. Sometimes as therapists, we start working on final consonants way too early. And I already gave you an indication of that with we should be looking at a child's language development and deciding uh, is he language wise is he closer to three or is he closer to two and if he is developmentally closer to two meaning that he's just starting to really use some two word phrases he's not even consistently using three and four word uh, little phrases and short sentences yet I don't even worry about initial or final consonants until a kid is really really talking in phrases consistently because that's when it lets me know that he's developmentally ready and we're sort of jumping ahead to part two which is really really exciting uh, in this series because it really does help you decide is this child developmentally ready or is he not ready to work on articulation yet? But before we did that, we had to get to part one, which is what this show is about, is how do we really know, yes or no, should we work on speech intelligibility? And so that's what these five factors were. So in wrapping up this show, let's just review this. 
these five factors. First of all, we were going to look at the overall intel intelligibility levels. So we're going to take a kid's age and we're going to say, is he falling within this range? And remember we said 19 to 24 months was 25 to 50%. We said any kid that's two or three, and I might have misspoken when I said this before. So this would be from the second birthday all the way up really until he's turning four would be that 50 to 75% intelligibility according to this study. And, the, and again, the reason I like using this is because it's so clear cut and so easy to explain to parents. And then kids at four to five years should be 75 to 90% intelligible. And so then five years plus, that's when we get to the, I understand almost everything he says, 90 to 100%. And even with those kids who are five, you may still have some articulation errors that are present. They may still struggle with consonant blends. They may still struggle with an R. They may not have an R yet when they're five. You know, really the age for, um, that kind of final age for mastery on R is eight. And so think about that. That's your first factor. How intelligible is he overall? And so as a parent, that's what you can kind of do. You can sort of gauge during the day. He just said this. Did I understand it? Yes or no? He just said this. Did I understand it? Yes or no? You can do that kind of informal language sample. As speech-language pathologists, we learn a lot about language sampling in uh, grad school. We don't always use it <laughs> like we should just because of the nature of how reimbursement is and so we don't always get the luxury of just sitting and doing a language sample and calculating intelligibility sometimes we don't feel like that's worth the whole session uh, but really you can get great information about that and parents are really good at being able to say well i understand about half of what he says or i i i only get i only understand him a little bit you know, and that would be a kid that we would rate weight under that 25%. So look at that. That's your first factor. What's this overall intelligibility level? And then we have the four more specific factors that's, uh, that relate to actually how he uses the sounds and gets them all in the right places. So remember we said numerous vowel errors. If a kid has numerous vowel errors, that's a significant speech problem. If he leaves off the first sounds in words, so that widespread deletion of initial consonants, that was the second factor. The third factor was substitution of back consonants, those pharyngeal sounds, K's and G's, or the H, the, uh, that glottal sound there, the H. Uh, does he substitute those sounds for other consonant sounds? And then the last, the fifth factor, does he omit those final consonants? But remember with that one, have to be a little pickier. It is an, a factor for significant speech problems, but at the same time, it's not developmentally uh, required or appropriate until a child is closer to that third birthday. So I hope that this has made this topic clearer for you and so that you can understand uh, how to use these factors as it, when you are deciding if a child has a significant speech intelligibility problem or not. And this is the number one thing that you're going to look at. And as a therapist, you're thinking, is this worthy or is this worthy may not be the right word there, but is this worth it? Is it worth me working on this? And we talked about before, I've already said this once, but let me say it again. What happens when, when we do over-focus on articulation and, and don't, uh, and, and we just, we, we don't, we, we are, again, when it's inappropriate to do that, we already talked about that a kid could plateau a little bit, but I didn't talk about all the really things that are actually worse than that, the more severe negative consequences, so problematic behaviors. Is he really, really, um, upset when you start to cue him or make him say a, a sound that he didn't say or correct his speech. So is he trying to run away from you? Is he really, really negative? Is he avoiding? Uh, a problem behavior would be, does he bite? Does he bang his head? Does he try to smack you? Those are all really, really, really big signs that a child is not ready to work on this and that you're actually creating more of a problem when you are overemphasizing uh, speech intelligibility. So we want to be super, super careful about that because none of that, that pressure is just not conducive to helping a toddler or a preschooler learn to communicate. 
as a speech language pathologist, I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of making a child less likely to talk or less likely to communicate. So when a child really starts all that with me, I back off. I take that as a big warning sign, you know, kind of the nuclear sound, the wah, wah. I, I look at it like that and think, boy, I'm putting too much pressure on him. I've got to back off here. I've got to uh, find something else to work on with this child. He's not ready yet. We, we've, I, I've, I've missed something in this child's development. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next part of this show is what we'd really, really let you know what would come next. If, if speech intelligibility is a problem, but he's so, 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 so negative, there's something I'm missing here. There's something that, that's still amiss developmentally. And that's not to say that kids aren't going to be negative when you start to correct anything that they do. I mean, that's just human nature, that they would want to uh, push back a little bit or resist and not want to work on that. But we don't want to do anything that would create more of a problem with a child's communication. So uh, as a parent, that's really, really important to um, think about. You know, if you have a child that really, really, really is resistant, even in therapy, if you're having lots of crying in therapy sessions and lots of running away and lots of avoiding and lots of him trying to escape, the goals probably aren't where they should be developmentally. Now, as a therapist, you may really cringe and you may think, I can't believe this lady's saying this on YouTube where all these parents can hear it. This is terrible. She's doing a real disservice to our profession. No, I'm not, because what I'm really doing is trying to get parents to understand and you as a therapist to understand that we've got to meet kids where they are developmentally. And if they're not ready to work on our tick, what do we do? We don't work on our tick, of course, but we get them ready. We do the things that would, will make this easier for them to do. We do the things that are more fun. And that's what the rest of this entire uh, now seven-part remaining part, eight-part series is going to do is teach you what to work on and how to do it so that it is developmentally appropriate and so that a kid is more likely to participate and so sessions are a lot happier and so we do want therapists and parents thinking about that especially at this earliest developmental level so I wanted to mention that as well and so let's just finish this show with the point that I started with what a toddler is trying to say always trumps how he says it. It's always much, much, much more important. So we always want to listen to that message and do everything we can to help kids learn how to communicate. It's not just about talking. It's not just about, can I say the word correctly? Can I produce it with, you know, 100% accuracy? The most important thing is the message that they're trying to share. And so even if we're going to spend this whole entire summer talking about speech intelligibility, I want you to always, always, always keep that in mind. And as a therapist, when you find your little friends becoming more negative or becoming more resistant, or, you know, they're crying when you first see them rather than crying at the end when the session is over. There's something, there's something that you can do to make things easier. And, again, it's not that kids won't be negative as toddlers in therapy. I mean, that's, that's why we call it the terrible twos <laughs> because we do see kind of that natural pulling away or that natural resisting because children are becoming their own people and they are becoming autonomous and separate from their parents and we do want to see that because that is another developmental rung. They realize that they're their own little people and that they're in control of what they do but at the same time when it becomes overly negative oh that's not fun for that kid and it, it's not fun for me either and I know it's not fun for you as a therapist to have a child kind of endure that what seems like torture and it's certainly not fun for a parent in that situation who wants to see their child upset for a whole hour who wants to pay for having their child be upset a whole hour <laughs> so there are better ways to do this there are really fun ways to work on speech intelligibility with toddlers and that's what this whole book is about uh, functional phonology it's my therapy manual a language-based approach for treating speech intelligibility problems in toddlers all the information that we pulled from today 
uh, is found here in the therapy manual. But remember, this isn't just these aren't studies that I've come up with, or these aren't these factors that I've invented. This was evidence-based practice, and you can get those resources there in your continuing education handout. And so, if you are a therapist, a speech language pathologist, or an um, early interventionist, uh, teacher people, as I like to call uh, our colleagues who are educators, get the information about that in the post below so that you can get credit for watching or listening to this podcast. All right, that is all for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Thank you.